Ipse podcast. We are Ipse, the independent regulator of the majority of newspapers and magazines in the UK. These podcasts are for anyone who's interested in newspapers, the media, journalism, how the press is regulated, and of course, Ipse's work. I'm your host, Vicky, and today I'm joined by Ipse's head of standards, Charlotte Irwin, and also by Neil Benson, who is the chair of the Editor's Code Committee. And Neil is joining us today to talk about the review of the Editor's Code, which was launched by the Code Committee this week. So welcome, Neil, and welcome, Charlotte. Lovely to have you both on the podcast. Neil, as you might expect, we spend quite a lot of time talking about the Code on this podcast. Uh, For people's information, could you give us a bit of background on the Code and the Code Committee and its work? Of course, yes. Um, Well, the the Code is really the foundation stone uh, of the UK press's uh, self-regulatory system. Um, it's called the Editor's Code because it's put together by a committee formed mainly of working editors, which we think is really important in the context of making it meaningful uh, about, about today's world and relevant to journalists. The committee was formed uh, coming up to um, 30 years ago. The, the first draft of the code was done uh, towards the end Uh, of 1990, which means that in the autumn of this year, it'll have been around for 30 years or so. Um, And that was ahead of the Press Complaints Commission, the forerunner of IPSO, coming into existence on January the 1st of 1991. Um, Shall I tell you a bit about the uh, formation of the the committee? Um, There are 15 people on it. There's myself as the independent chair. I've been doing that for around two and a half years. there's Jonathan Grun, a former editor of the Press Association, who is the uh, secretary to the co-committee. Um, the chair of IPSO and the chief executive of IPSO uh, are both uh, uh, attendees as well. And then we, we've got a, a mix of national and uh, regional newspaper editors, uh, a representative from Scotland, which is you know, a pretty hot spot for media and also has some of its own particular issues. Um, and a rep- representative from uh, the magazine industry. Um, a significant development uh, that happened a few years ago was the introduction of lay members uh, into the membership, which uh, has certainly been, I think, a very helpful uh, and healthy thing to do. Um, we have three lay members, uh, one of whom is going to be leaving later this year, but will be replaced. And I think they brought a, just a different take uh, on media and how it should be regulated uh, and how the, therefore the, the code should be developed going forward. And what, what about the relationship between IPSO and the Code Committee and the Code? The, um, I think, looking back a few years, I think the, um, with the, in the days of the Press Complaints Commission, probably the relationship was a little bit distant and not as joined up as it might be. There's obviously... Um, a sort of careful balance to be uh, struck here between having a good working relationship but not becoming too cosy or too close to each other. Um, I think that uh, over recent years, uh, since Ipso has come into being, that we've made some changes along the way, um, uh, such as um, the Secretary of the Code Committee attending uh, the Complaints Committee, so he can see how Ipso's Complaints Committee are interpreting uh, particular cases is is one of the ways that we've tried to to join things up without becoming uh, too hand in glove with each mm. other. And I guess kind of fundamentally, the code committee set the rules and it's a police those. Exactly, exactly that. Yes, it's uh, it's about uh, uh, the code committee setting and reviewing uh, uh, the standards that we that we think journalists should work to, 
And um, important to say also, I think that this is a, uh, it's a living document. Um, it's under constant review anyway, and we make changes along the way. I know we'll talk a bit later about mm. uh, the, the formal review, but uh, uh, there have been many changes made over the years, I think in excess of 30 changes in the, in the 13 yeah. existence so of the code. So interesting that you say it's kind of a living document and presumably this is exactly the reason why um, you're running this consultation and in the past, well, I think is it every couple of years? That you it's every three years. It's every yes. three years. Yes, which, um, which I think is very helpful because we, as I say, we do um, keep the code under constant review and if we get people either from inside or outside the industry making suggestions, then we'll will uh, deal with them as they arise. Uh, it obviously wouldn't be uh, the right way to do it, just to wait for a three-yearly review. We need mm. to sort of respond to things more quickly than that quite often. But I do think the, the three-yearly formal review is important because it means that we can um, talk to the uh, the industry and, and to the country more widely to let them know we are formally looking at this. I think it helps in terms of transparency uh, that we're seen to, to be sort of inviting uh, um, uh, ideas to come forward and suggestions to how to change the code. So I think the two together uh, help us to sort of keep things moving uh, in as forward-looking a way as we can. Um, and also by, I think, inviting uh, comments is, is sort of the right way to go rather than just waiting for comments to come in driven by particular individuals. Mm. And, you know, as somebody that works on a daily basis with the code, Charlotte, would you kind of agree with that sentiment? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important that the code is kept under constant review. You know, in many ways, actually, the code isn't necessarily subject to the sort of significant changes that have been in the industry around, say, for example, move online, use of social media, things like that. But at the same time, that's a really important context within which journalists work and which does actually have an impact on how journalists might go about gathering material or how it might be presented. So it's really important that the code does reflect the challenges and situations in which journalists are currently working, because that's how regulation ensures that it affects what's going on, that it reflects what's going on in the real world, and how it strikes that difficult balance between, you know, protecting the public, which is really important, and also ensuring freedom of expression as well. And as Neil's alluded to, you run a review of the code every few years and it has resulted in several practical changes to the code. So I wonder, Neil, if you could just kind of tell us about a couple of these. Yes, uh, in early 2018, there were a couple of changes. One was to Clause 2, which is about privacy. Um, and that was to clarify um, how um, complainants might be viewed um, depending on their behaviour. So if, as an example, if you had a, a celebrity uh, who had complained uh, about intrusion of privacy, privacy regarding their children, uh, then uh, the code reflects that um, by looking at, you know, have they contributed to that? Have they kept their children completely private and out of the public eye? Or have they actually, as happens occasionally, uh, that celebrities use their children almost as a, a part of the, their brand, an extension of it. So uh, the complainant's behaviour, in effect, becomes uh, part of the consideration, uh, both in the code and then should a complaint arise when it comes to the complaints committee. Um, and the other change at, at the same time in 2018 was to Clause 9. Um, and this uh, related to naming uh, minors, this is people under 18, um, after they may have been arrested, but before they came to trial uh, in an adult court. 
it sounds probably quite a technical point, mm. but what was happening was that many that the law makes no requirement on uh, on uh, on publishers to not name children during that period between arrest and, and appearing in court. But many uh, publishers had taken the view that they wouldn't name them anyway unless the name was already out in the public domain. But some publishers, a minority, were still uh, uh, publishing names. So um, we felt that it uh, made more sense to have a uniform approach to that. So we actually changed the code and in that sense goes beyond the law, beyond the legal requirement. Um, but again, it's, I think, to do partly with societal change and mm. I think people expect... Uh, um, uh, children uh, to get some sort of extra form of protection. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good example of kind of how the code has been adapted because of changes in in society and people's expectations as well. Yes. And presumably um, on your website, you do publish um, people's responses to um, your code reviews. Yes, that's right. Uh, three years ago when we did the last review, uh, we had uh, in excess of 4,000 submissions uh, and all of those uh, with the agreement of the people who submitted them were uh, carried on uh, the Code Committee website. Uh, I should probably just explain that of the 4,000, they weren't sort of 4,000 different separate um, uh, submissions. There were many uh, that were actually coordinated uh, and where certain sort of lobby groups would, would uh, get people to sort of cut and paste um, uh, and submit uh, pretty much the same point multiple times. Mm. Well, it's certainly uh, interesting to kind of see where people's thinking is uh, around that review. And um, I wondered, Charlotte, if we could pick up, because um, I want to give people an example of where the code has been changed kind of as a result of so uh, something that's kind of come out of Ipsa's work. And we have briefly talked about this before on another podcast, but I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the change to Clause 11 of the Code, which deals with victims of sexual assault. Yeah, so um, as current, as regular listeners will know, we've talked about Clause 11 and the reporting of sexual offences before, but I think this is a really important point. So Clause 11 of the Code extends significant protection to, I will use the terminology of the Code here, victims of sexual assault. Um, the code very much here aligns with the legal position around providing anonymity to those who are victims of sexual assault. Um, so th there was already an existing clause in place, which, as I say, extended significant protection. But when Ipso was looking at some complaints about 80, about sort of a year ago or so now, um, we identified a sort of slight um, point that we wanted to address, which was really around making sure that the protections that are in place for victims of sexual assault don't just apply to the kind of publication of information, which was already the position, but also making clear that it also applies to the news gathering process. So what that actually means is this arose from two complaints that Ipso had had where journalists had been gathering information for pieces about reports of sexual offences, which had included information about victims of sexual assault and what we wanted to make clear was that those anonymity protections also extended to the news gathering process so that for example when journalists were going out to gather information for such a story they can absolutely still be asking questions but they need to be taking care about the sorts of questions that they're asking and the way in which they're gathering information to make sure that they do protect the anonymity of those victims in line with the code. And I'm interested to hear a bit more Neil about 
kind of previous submissions to the code review. Um, is there anything that's been submitted that you found kind of surprising or, or interesting? Yes, I think um, last time around we had some submissions from the scientific community mm. who weren't very happy with the way science was being reported generally in the press and they uh, wanted some changes to be made to the, to the code. Uh, we felt that that was getting a bit too niche and too detailed. We are always very keen to keep the code uh, as brief and non-legalistic and simple to understand as possible. Um, but we did think that uh, the submission had some merit. And so we also, alongside the code itself, we produced the editor's code book. Uh, and this covers some of the findings that Ipso have made. Uh, it helps to bring the code to life through real life examples. Mm. And what we've done in relation to, to the scientific community is to link to their uh, suggested best practice guidelines so that journalists, when they're using the Codebook website, can click through and, and get some uh, expert opinion on the habit, which will actually help them to do their job and to be more credible. And, I mean, can we expect, if we move to talk about the current review, is that the kind of, of people that you'd like to hear from? We'd like to hear from anybody and everybody who's got a view, um, and be that um, organisations, individuals, people who've been affected by the press perhaps, and from the industry itself, because I think within the industry we need to sort of look at what their view of the code is, because it is their code that mm, they and work And of course on. they are working working with it every day. Absolutely, well. yeah. So so it's a, it's a completely wide open field really, uh, and I wouldn't really want want to sort of uh, predict what's going to come forward because I think last time around we there are certain things that came that we couldn't have predicted that were mm -hmm. actually really useful. Um, and tell us how if people want to submit to the review they can they can do that. Uh, by uh, using uh, an email uh, address of codereview2020 that's numbers 2020 at gmail.com um, and the deadline for submissions is Friday, March the 27th. And I know that even though um, we started to invite um, submissions only two or three days ago, we've already had our first one. And oh, we think excellent. that will accelerate as time goes by. And there's no kind of real set format for the way in which people need to submit. Could you advise people a bit on, on what they should do if they want to make a submission? I, th I think if, if it's a change to the existing code, if they could refer to what the current clause says that they're interested in and what their suggested change would be, um, that would be helpful. If it's something new, then obviously to sort of explain the background and to, to develop the thinking behind the suggestion rather than just a bold suggestion so that there's some sort of uh, uh, something for us to work on to start to sort of develop a discussion. And, and Charlotte, without kind of making any assumptions or preempting anything here, if Ipso were to submit a response, and we don't want to give away any any spoilers to Neil here, um, could we? What sort of information might Ipso use in order to formulate that? So we use information from a couple of different places, as we've already touched on. Of course, you know we are using the code every day, both in the advice that we give to journalists, the explanation that we give to members of the public who. Uh, might want to make a complaint or want to understand a bit more about how journalists work. We use it when we go out and engage with organisations who are interested in raising press standards. And of course, it's applied throughout our complaints process that we follow here. So it's it's used regularly at the complaints committee where they'll talk about how particularly 
particular clauses of the code apply to particular complaints. So the first thing we're going to we would do is we would synthesize all of those sorts of conversations, thinking about how we use and apply the code and identify any potential areas where we think that a change could be made for reasons of clarity or to address a potential issue that has come up in a complaint that we've received, things like that. Um, but we don't just look at that sort of information, of course, in the standards function. We do a lot of ongoing monitoring of what we call editorial standards concerns, so concerns about potential failures to comply with the code, and we'll look at that information again to decide if there's anything from that sort of monitoring that we think might be relevant to any kind of submission that we make. And also, as, I, as I've touched on, you know, you and I, Vicky, and, and others here at IPSO do have the good fortune to go out and meet lots of different organisations and individuals who are interested in editorial standards issues. And we will both be communicating with them about the code, just reminding them, because a lot of them want to make a submission. Sorry, Neil, um, but they do. <laughs> <laughs> so those will be coming your way. Um, you know, just reminding them about the code. But also, I think we play as a, a role as IPSO, not in adopting the particular positions of any of the organisations that we've met, but just, I think, in also flagging up some of the conversations that we've had um, with organisations external to IPSO and just making sure that the code committee is aware of those as well. So thanks to both Neil and Charlotte for joining me on the podcast today. And as always, let us know what you think. We are on Twitter at, at IPSO News. Um, and more details about the code review can be found on the Editor's Code website, which is editorscode.org.uk. And as Neil said, for anybody wanting to make a submission to the code review, the email address is codereview2020 at gmail.com. And submissions uh, can be sent all the way up to the 27th of March. So thank you very much both. And we will see you again soon.